Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Dusty Davidson, co-founder of Flywheel. Dusty Davidson is a technology entrepreneur on the Silicon Prairie. Over a decade ago, he co-founded the software development company Brightmix, before co-founding his current business, Flywheel, a WordPress website hosting solution. With Jeff Slobotsky, in 2008, Dusty founded Silicon Prairie News, a media company focusing on growing, connecting, and inspiring the region's tech innovation communities, and in 2009, hosted the first Big Omaha, an annual innovation event. Dusty is passionate about startups, particularly those in the Silicon Prairie, loves all things food and wine, and lives in Omaha with his wife and daughter. Dusty, welcome to the show. Oh, Stuart, thanks so much for having me. My first question is going to be, tell me about your upbringing. Yeah, so I grew up uh, I grew up in Iowa, uh, mostly uh, in Council Bluffs. Um, you know, grew, grew up there, went to high school there, uh, ultimately went to college in Iowa, um, you know, studied uh, computer science, kind of always, a, always kind of a tech geek, if you would. Um, and uh, I always describe it as, you know, after that, was wanting to be anywhere but, uh, but here. As I think many young people do, and you know, California is where it's cool if you're into technology, and uh, so I wanted to go there. And as the story goes, met a, met a girl and never left, and so uh, here we are. So, what was life like as a child in Council Bluffs? Uh, life was good. You know, I grew up uh, mostly with with my mother and my sister, right? And we, uh, you know, we had a good life. And the, uh, you know, I, I always describe it as my my mom worked really hard to make sure that uh, we. We had everything that we needed, uh, but you know she was a she was a single mom and she didn't let it show. And I think that uh, you know, my sister and I were were, were really fortunate in that way. Uh, is your sister older or younger? Younger sister, four years younger. Okay, my my sister six years older, and my mom was a single mom too. And it's just uh, it it's always occurred to me just how fascinating it was to be in a household with two older women, and uh, I, I definitely think that's kind of shaped who I am in some ways. Yeah, I would agree with that. I was just saying this to somebody the other day that I grew up primarily with women. My, for a period of time, we lived with my grandmother, like lived with my mother and my sister, and I think it, it certainly has shaped, uh, you know, you know, my respect for women, my uh, the way that, that you know that I think about um, you know mothers and daughters, and I have a daughter myself, and, and all those sorts of things, and so um, and just to watch you know my mom, uh, you know, provide for us in in a, in a time when. Uh, you know, we, again, we were growing up in high school, you, you have just activities, there's things to spend money on, there's all these things. And, uh, and again, like she didn't, she didn't let it show. I think why I'm interested in people's context when they were born and raised is because it's that landscape in those early years where values are informed and they begin to influence the experiences you have later in life. And I think for people perhaps like you that are maybe shaping businesses and communities in certain ways, those values become really important because that's when you really start to manifest them in ways that impact a lot of people. So that's why I'm curious about that. And I think we'll circle back around as we as we have a conversation to some of those things. I do want to ask first though about Brightmix. And that seems to have evolved after you have a good experience in a good culture in a smaller company. And then you apparently have a experience in a much larger company with uh, a terrible culture. And these influenced 
how you thought about founding Brightmix and, and what it was going to be like. So I wonder if you might just share what those experiences were of these previous two companies. Yeah, I think you, you hit it on the head. I think my first my first job was uh, an opportunity to work at a, a small company with, uh, I think, a great great culture, you know, hardworking, really passionate, driven folks that um, that cared about the craft uh, of software engineering and and what worked really hard. I would say we're in the foxhole together. And uh, my second experience was, I think, less uh, less enjoyable for me uh, at a much larger company where I played a less critical role, but also. You know, I cared deeply about the the software that we built. I wanted to be better and improve and um, drive and innovate. Uh, and you know, the where where I was at wasn't conducive for that. In fact, you know, um, in lots of ways, we were a cost center. We weren't the driver I- in that regard. And so, you know, I, I think both of those experiences shaped you know my first company. I, I always say that I never I never was an entrepreneur. Like no, at no point, not not in my upbringing, not. In high school, not in college, did anybody ever even um, you know tease the idea of being an entrepreneur? And I often describe it as I am an entrepreneur, be- not because I had a great idea, but because because I hated my job so much uh, that um, that and I wanted and longed for a great culture and a great innovation uh, opportunity. That you know, in my mind, I, I either left to find it in places where. You know, great software cultures are pervasive, or you just build it here. And leaving wasn't an option. And so, uh, you know, we, we set out to build it. And in large part, it was built on the idea of what, you know, what would we want if we were to show up somewhere every day? And we have this very people-focused mindset going back to the very beginning of, of the fact that if, if you kind of get the culture right, it sort of attracts more people that, that also want that and that it's those people by which you you ultimately are successful, right? And um, and so we built it, you know, first and foremost for ourselves, a place that we would want to go every day. And some of that was based on positive experiences that we had, and some of that was shaped by negative experiences that we had. Um, but at the end of the day, it was about about building a place where we would be happy being, um, and and hoping that that would attract more people that wanted that too. So I, I'm glad you used the word entrepreneur because I wanted to ask you about what is entrepreneurship from your perspective and, and how you would define that. And not least because I think there are any number of ways that perhaps people just Google and understand that from an objective point of view, but you're living it. And I, I like this idea that you were driven out of somewhere and therefore driven into entrepreneurship. And I don't know that that's necessarily a common uh, entry point into entrepreneurship or a common definition of what entrepreneurship is. So, um, that's a long way of getting you to paint perhaps some parameters around and some contextual definition for how you think about entrepreneurship. Yeah, I think there's, you know, to me, entrepreneurship is the act of of creating something of value from scratch in a way, right? And so the, and and it takes many shapes. Um, you can be entrepreneurial in, in within a, a larger construct or certainly in the, the context of business, it's a you know often the the act of creating a new business from scratch and um, and even within that you know you could have a lawn mowing business or you could create you know the next Facebook and so for me I I do in my world today and the things that I was interested in you know as a technologist I tend to care about um, high growth tech entrepreneurship or tech enabled entrepreneurship so creating technology based or technology enabled companies from scratch. And I think, you know, that aligns with the fact that I just love 
you know, software and, and innovation. Um, but also, I think those tend to be the types of organizations from a growth perspective that, that, are tra- that can be transformative. And I, 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 going back to the early days of starting companies was always um, very fixated on, you know, again, what you'd see, the types of companies that you'd see created in, in places like Silicon Valley, right? Where it wasn't just about great cultures. It was, it was the cultures were either a byproduct or a, or a feeder into, you know, great success that they would have in these businesses that were growing rapidly and changing the world. And so I tend to look at that. I, I, I you know, I think about the spectrum of entrepreneurship, you know, uh, quite a lot, but, but I really focus on the sort of tech high growth area. I read somewhere that you'd remark that if it wasn't for getting married and therefore opening up access to healthcare through your wife's plan, that it would have been really difficult, if not impossible, to have jumped into Bright Mix, which in a very advanced Western democracy like the United States seems an absurd thing to say. And yet it's it's also a truth, right? If you want to look after your family and, and stay healthy, that one has to worry about where one's healthcare coverage comes from. So to the degree that I'm stating that accurately, I'm, I'm wondering what are the drags on people becoming entrepreneurs and what are some of the barriers that, that exist in, in front of people? To me, there's, there's two categories of barriers. One is, one is um, really tangible, right? Like you need health insurance, you need money for food, you need, uh, you know, if you have a family, you need to provide for them, right? Like I would say a fiduciary responsibility to your family. Um, and so those are very real things. Um, and, and some of them are less real, right? Like my, my perception that in order to have health insurance, I needed to get married or I needed to be on my wife's plan may or may not have been true. I think it was largely more true then. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it certainly even then was possible to, to have individual coverage. Um, so that was sort of psychological. But I think the biggest, the, the other category for me, and I think probably the biggest inhibitor is really, um, I describe it as, at least in the Midwest, I think largely though, people need to be given permission to, to start companies, right? They, they don't have an entirely full worldview of po- the possibilities that are in front of them. Um, the, you know, they, you sort of go to, you know, graduate high school, you go to college, maybe, um, you, you, you go get a job because that's what you're expected to do. You get married, you have kids, you live happily ever after. Um, and I don't believe that everyone is destined to be a founder or an entrepreneur, but I do believe that everybody should have a full picture of what the opportunities are that uh, are available to them. And, and for me, honestly, it was that more than anything, right? It, I didn't even know this to be an option. Uh, and then you add the other limitations to it and it's it's it's, it can be a big barrier it's one of the reasons why i spend a lot of time these days and over the last decade um, really just telling people that it's possible and in a lot of ways showcasing them and to them that it's it's possible and that and in a way like i say give them give them permission to do so if they so choose and if they choose not to then that's great Um, but uh, but at least they they knew it was a possibility
So you founded Bright Mix, and this was over a decade ago, and obviously you've done all sorts of interesting things since then. But around that same time, that was the business side of this startup entrepreneurship. But you also seem to have observed both a lack of some ecosystem to support this kind of endeavor, and at the same time, saw the gap that could be filled by encouraging some kind of community around the idea of technologically minded innovators and creatives and and business people. To not put words in your mouth, I'm wondering if this is part of the driver for Silicon Prairie News, and I'm wondering if you might share some of your thoughts about what was the ecosystem that you were observing at that time, and what were your thoughts uh, in partnership with Jeff, Jeff Slobotsky, in terms of trying to create something that turned out to be Silicon Prairie News? So in 2007, I believe, uh, we, you know, we had started Brightmix, and we, we did feel very much uh, on an island, right? The idea that we had started this technology company, we're trying to build a great culture, we're trying to grow and scale it, but we certainly felt like we were the only ones. Um, and in part, one of the reasons as a young person why I was sort of you know, ready to get out of here was because you didn't see other things happening around. Um, and so, uh, you know, honestly, we just wanted to find more people like us in the beginning, right? like more people that cared about the same things. And through that, uh, was uh, got connected to a gentleman named Jeff Zabotsky, who is um, now, fast forward many years, a, a very good friend and a very good friend to many people in the community uh, and really just a, an extraordinary uh, connector of of, of folks. And he really opened my eyes to the idea that, that there were other people out there that were doing really interesting, innovative, and creative things, um, but that nobody knew about them. Um, and so thus was born Silicon Prairie News, uh, which was really just a blog highlighting and showcasing, um, you know, the people that Jeff knew and ultimately the people that we knew that um, that we're, we're pushing the boundaries and how do we, how do we get the word out about them? And, and then through that, how do you build connections, um, community, uh, and, uh, and really, a um, you know, kind of a density of, of those folks so that, so that, you know, a, like we wanted to just make friends and, uh, uh, and B that, you know, a lot more people would see that and say, huh, there's like, there's something there. There's, there's, you peel back the onion a little bit, there's there's really cool stuff happening. And we should say that Silicon Prairie News itself has, since that time, been acquired by the AIM Institute. So you have moved on from that, having founded it and propelled it into existence. One of the initiatives that I recall with great fondness and deep admiration was the event Big Omaha. And that followed, I think, within months of you setting up Silicon Prairie News. So I wonder if you might just describe for people what Big Omaha was at that time and why on earth you undertook what was a really pretty substantial and significant endeavor. So Big Omaha was a a conference that um, we threw for the first time in 2009, I believe. Um, And with really the simple idea that we had built Silicon Prairie News um, to... Uh, to have come to have this online community of people connected within the region. Um, we'd thrown a series of small events, just kind of meetups where you'd get people together and, and you, and we had an author come through, Sarah Lacey, who 
just on a book tour, came to Omaha, and it was a, an event where we got a bunch of people together at a bar, and she it was super inspiring and, and, and sort of talked about her book, but then just hung out with the people. Um, and it was one of the first times that you saw this intersection of this outside innovator with a community of like really engaged, uh, creative folks. Um, and I always say a little bit of booze just to kind of like see what happens. <laughs> and, um, and you, you end up with this, uh, this, this recipe for really extraordinary interactions. Um, and Big Omaha was born out of that with the idea that mate, what if we just did that times a hundred? That one event times, um, times a hundred or times a thousand. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't particularly enjoy conferences. I don't, um, I'm not an event planner. You know, I'm a, I'm a nerd, right? Like, but we wanted to recreate that experience and, 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 and make it available to more people. And so that's the idea of Big Omaha was born. Um, it's a, it originally was a one day conference where we flew in innovators, um, and leaders from around the country to Omaha for a, for a one day sort of conference, um, bookended by two parties and, uh, you know, kind of, around this idea of, of inspiring and um, creating serendipitous moments for people to uh, engage and collide uh, and and connect. And and it's still, uh, you know, Vigom has sort of morphed, I believe, going forward, but it ran for 10 years. Uh, and I think, you know, some of my best friendships in, in the world sort of evolved out of, uh, out of that uh, endeavor, as well as, you know, I know many, many, many companies and partnerships and, and other friendships as well. So you have flourished beyond that too now, right, as well, because Big Omaha has taken on a different mantle as well, that you've let that out into the world. Yeah, so Big Omaha uh, it sort of changed hands and, you know, the AIM Institute ran it for a couple of years and did a really nice job sort of carrying on the legacy. And then uh, currently, uh, I should say last year, Maha Music Festival ran it. And it was, a, it was a great event and kind of has then morphed and evolved into what has become the the new the new face of uh, the Maha Festival, which I think is a super cool evolution of it, right? It, it's it it was my baby and mine and Jeff's baby for for many years, but uh, it's it's fun to kind of put it out in the world and kind of see it take take a different shape, especially in an evolving climate, right? It served its purpose um, at the time at which it existed, and to think that it would exist in the same same form, you know, uh, for eternity, I think is kind of counter to the idea of innovation, to be honest with you. And so, um, yeah, it's super, super cool to see the evolution in, in other people's hands and excited to see where it goes from here. So I like this language, which in many ways feels true to this idea of entrepreneurship in terms of creating something or, or uh, birthing something, which then grows and transforms and evolves to a point where it flourishes and naturally moves on to something different or otherwise which I think is very much in the spirit of Silicon Prairie News, Big Omaha, some of the other endeavors that you've been involved with. In that spirit, what have you seen over the last 10 to 15 years in terms of the Midwest's entrepreneurial ecosystem? How have you seen that evolve from what it looked like 15 years ago, however you saw that, to how you see it today? I think that it's it's evolved quite a lot, and I, I say, always say trending, trending upwards, um, right? You never quite have arrived. I think, I think, uh, as a venture capitalist, Brad Felds, who describes it as like, you're, it's always a 20 year journey, and the 20 year journey always starts tomorrow, right? Like, it's, it's a perpetual 20 year journey. And so, I believe that the Omaha community is, as, 
has, and Nebraska and the Silicon Prairie in, uh, at large, um, have, um, you know, they've grown quite significantly over the last 15 years. Um, but it still feels very much on the first, what I describe as the first wave, right? Like that, that the first, the first wave of success and of growth hasn't yet crested, but is close, I think. There's lots of really, I think, interesting, um, companies that are, that have grown quite large. Um, Huddle is an example of this. When we, uh, out of Lincoln, when we first started Silicon Prairie News, you know, we were the first to ever cover Huddle, and there was maybe five people on the team, right? And now Huddle has thousands of people around the world. And I think that um, if you look at great entrepreneurial ecosystems around the world, the best ones are on their second and third waves. And so, you know, I think that the the efforts of many over the last 15 years, both in catalyzing and connecting and in building companies, um, has grown the ecosystem quite nicely and at the same time there's a lot of work to be done and so uh you know it's kind of cool to see the difference i love reminiscing with some of the folks that you know go back to the to the early days of the you know silicon prairie news days of of like you know the difference between then and now is is, is quite striking Erica Wasinger was on the show a while ago, and so she she runs the Startup Collaborative with uh, Nathan Preheim. We talked a lot about um, the makeup of the people in and funding and investing in the tech industry and entrepreneurship. I, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on some of the social justice issues that we're seeing at the moment, because you're very much in a leadership position in this community, in a leadership position as regards the entrepreneurial community here too. And I'm curious thinking back to how we started this conversation about being raised in some ways in a very female-centric household and how how you see the nature of this business, the tech industry, which I think is facing some 
some reasonable criticism about how it's structured and how it treats people that perhaps um, don't look like you or I, which is white male. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think the industry as a, as, as, as a whole sort of suffers from that. You know, we describe, we describe you know, our position here in Omaha at Flywheel is like we're in a part of the country that suffers from that, I think, quite a lot in an industry that suffers from that quite a lot. And so um, sort of like doubly uphill in a way. Um, I, I, I will say that I am um, encouraged by, uh, you know, the dialogue around it, you know, you know nationwide and worldwide. Um, I think that there's a, there, there are, you know, there's a long way to go. I, Flywheel has a value that we're a work in progress. And I think this is the sort of ultimate work in progress, not only for Flywheel, but, um, but industry-wide and certainly for Omaha and, uh, is, is how do you, how do you get more underrepresented folks in, engaged and involved in tech, entrepreneurship, the arts, create like all of innovation, all of the things that, that are the things that, that I care about. And one of the things that, um, you know, one of the things I love about, about technology and, and entrepreneurship is I think that if you give access to people, um, you know, it can happen anywhere, right? I think there's lots of people <laughs> across the country who are like, wait, that happens in Nebraska? And you're like, well, yeah, because I think great innovation, great ideas can come from anywhere. And I think that that applies so true to other communities for me as well. Not, not, not cities, but communities of people. Um, and, um, and so I think that it can be one of the great enablers in that way. And so I love the dialogue around it that's happening. And, and it happens... Uh, I know it's happening at a city level. I know that it's happening at a national level. Um, and it happens increasingly at the company level. Flywheel cares deeply about diversity and inclusion in terms of the efforts and, and things that we're pushing forward. And while we have a lot of work to do, um, and there's, you know, sort of major work in progress, um, like we want to be, right, what I describe as a, as a beacon on the hill for it, right? Like how do you, how do you set the, how do you set the example? I think that that's one of the things that sets Flywheel apart from a lot of companies is that, you know, we choose to be here in Omaha and we want to make an impact here. Uh, it's not just about, hey, let's build a big company and make a lot of money. It's like, let's build a big company and make a big impact. And, um, you know, we all have families here. We all have, um, you know, we all choose and want to be here and make the community better. And I think that is an example of a way where I know that Flywheel can be a leader in that regard. Tell me about some of these tensions that you might be facing now then wanting to do good, wanting to make big impact, while at the same time having a company that in six years has gone from you know, three or four employees, co-founders to start with, to more than 200, uh, annual revenues 10 million plus, and continuing plans for growth. And now you're no longer kicking around in basements anymore. You are leading a very substantial and very visible organization. So how, how are you balancing some of the the, the tensions that are probably arising between massive growth and scale and wanting to make big impact and do the right thing. I think that the way we look at it is to take a re really quite a long-term view of the world, right? Like, you know, how do you, you know, how do you grow, but, but in a way kind of do the right thing is to me a, a function of like, well, do you believe that that creates value in the long term? Uh, and, and are we in this as a, in a short-term way or are we in this in a long-term way? Um, and I believe that investments in community, investments in, in, you know, flywheel being a, uh, uh, you know, I would say like more representative of our customer base as an example, 
um, and all of the other things that go into it, those are, it's, it's easier to, to make the short term decision and longer or and harder to make the long term decision. But, you know, my, one of my beliefs is that, you know, we're, we're here for long term and we're building something of, of lasting value. And so, you know, we're willing to make short term sacrifices in that way, right? I think that lots of companies don't do that, you know, especially when it gets hard. And well, again, we're not perfect at it in any way. Like we, we do try to take a long-term view of it. And I think that's the number, that's the number one way to overcome that. How are you different as a person? And maybe I don't know all my guests, but I do know you, but I don't know you super well, but I've known you enough to say that I've seen uh, you traverse this local landscape for the last 10 to 15 years. I'm curious, how, how are you a different person now, given all of this entrepreneurial experience that you've gone through? Now, there's lots of ways, I, I guess. Way more gray hair, I suppose. Um, uh, you know, I think that, you know, I, I started out as, you know, as a software engineer and, a, you know, a, a tech guy. And I think, and while I'm not exactly the proverbial tech guy, I was an introvert and I was a, uh, I was very much, a, you know, didn't, didn't want much to do with, uh, with anything except for writing code. And I think that, um, you know, honestly, Jeff Sabosky opened my eyes to the idea that, you know, I don't know that, that relationships with people matter, right? And, um, and, and, and frankly, relationships with more than just a few, uh, and, or that would, or that it was even possible to do that. I mean, Jeff's a guy who has, you know, I always describe it as like seven or eight overlapping friend groups, right? And when your average person has two, uh, and, um, and so, you know, I think that that is that that has shaped um, a lot of how we think about communities, a lot about how we think about, um, you know, even within the company, the organization. How do we, as an entrepreneur, how do we um, how do we make connections with folks? You know, we um, people often ask like, how did how did Flywheel raise venture capital dollars? And I always say, in the early days, we just knew people, and we knew people because of the efforts of of Silicon Prairie News and the uh, and and Big Omaha, and you know, while that's not enough to give to have somebody write you a check, uh, it it goes a long way. And so, you know, I think that that's probably the one of the 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 big sort of like transformational things. If you just take a snapshot of Dusty in two thousand and five and a snapshot of Dusty in two thousand and nineteen, uh, I think that that's probably that's probably one of the most transformative ones. Six a yak of the coke, cause a gun in part of it, the nine piece luggage set. Six a yak of the coke, cause a gun in part of it, the nine piece luggage set. She jet set. Invalise de valise a passe for my nine piece luggage set. Invalise de valise a passe for my nine piece luggage set. She jet set. Six a yak of the coke, cause a gun in part of it, the nine piece luggage set. Six a yak of the coke, cause a gun in part of it, the nine piece luggage set. She jet set. Invalise de valise a passe for my Je te 
voyage, fais des pèlerinages Pack ta swag, t'es name tag, puis t'es des bagages Bata avec tout ça, aïe où ce qu'on va On head check pas, bata j'sais même pas Collect tes air miles, c'est un aeroplane Hitchhikes, une bike, t'es pas la scenic view J'ai pas dit mes valises, y'a des hard part 2 J'ai pas dit mes valises, y'a des hard part 2 So you graduated from Iowa State University. Go Cyclones. <laughs> and um, it was a um, computer science degree? That's right. Okay. And then I recall that you traveled Europe somewhat. So what did you do and what did you learn about just life and yourself? I often describe, yeah, I often describe, you know, my travels around Europe as... Um, You know, I, I, when I talk to students, as an example, I always describe my journey as as graduating and then traveling and then getting a job. And and that that time traveling, six months just backpacking through Europe uh, by myself, um, as as one of the most transformative parts of my life. Um, I've always loved to travel. I was I was fortunate um, to be able to travel as a as a as a young person um, around around the world. And that shaped my desire to travel after college. I don't actually know why I did it or what was the overall sort of like impetus for it. But, but the act of, of I don't know, being by yourself and, and then have, with no money and no plan, um, I think is, uh, and just sort of like seeing what happens is good in lots of ways. You have to figure out how to, how to eat and you got to figure out how to navigate and you have to figure out how to overcome adversity and you have to figure out how to make friends and you have to figure out how to, Um, you know, all these things. And, uh, you know, I think that it was probably one of the biggest group personal growth, uh, things you have to, you know, you overcome loneliness, right? Like you're, you're off on your own and you haven't seen your family in forever. And there was no real internet to speak of. I mean, it was, it was, um, it was transformative. And I think that it certainly solidified my love of travel, which continues to this day. But it, I think m mostly was about, about learning to navigate um, adversity and solve problems and, and feel comfortable doing that. And I think that that, um, you know, that certainly carries through. Since that time, you have developed a tradition where you will spend a month or two in France, especially in Paris, each summer. Um, so talk a little bit more about the genesis of that and why. Well, we've always loved to travel, and and you know, I I, I think that uh, my contention, um, going back to the very early days of this, so my wife and I and and now daughter have been to to Paris for the summer or for a couple months in the summer every year for the last now eight or nine years, and it started as, as simply you know wanting to wanting to travel more, but then sort of falling trap to I think what lots of people do, which is like well, we'll travel when we're older or when we're retired or something like this. And my contention is that you say you'll travel when you're, you're older and then you get hit by a bus and you never do. And so, um, and so really wanting to, to sort of like, like, what would it take to travel now? Um, and, you know, we had, a, we had a place in the old market and we rented it out for the College World Series and, uh, you know, on Airbnb. And, and it sort of gave us permission to, to and frankly at the time, money, to uh to to go into um and you know in my in my line of work i can work from anywhere my wife teaches and so she has the summers off and so you know we just looked at the world and said well if you can work from anywhere and you you've got your sort of apartment taken care of um where would you go and we love food and wine so we ended up in france and 
Um, and then, you know, got really addicted to the idea of going back to the same community year after year and sort of just going deeper into a, into a, into a bigger city, into a, into a great food and wine city and, uh, into a place where, um, it's, it's, you know, dramatically different than it is here. Um, and then coming back, I think it heightens our, our love for this city, uh, to, to, to leave and come back and also gives us cool perspective on the world, which I, which I love. I love that juxtaposition of what this enables for you, not only in terms of being in a different culture, uh, extending this idea of um, yourself changing and transforming over time through the act of traveling, but also this uh, juxtaposition between what is essentially a very human experience and the work you do, which is in many ways inherently uh, in this virtual landscape of the internet. So I love all those juxtapositions, and I wonder how how you reflect on what it is for you to live a meaningful life that feels human and joyful and productive and rewarding while at the same time seeing that they occupy the landscape of the things you love like traveling, food and wine, going to different places and your business which is very much in this other other world this you know this 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 ethereal landscape of the internet yeah i think that um you know i <laughs> My, my business world and, and personal worlds are <laughs> hardly separated. And, um, you know, the travel is an example where I, I'm, I, I probably work more from France than I do from when I'm here. And part of that's because I'm remote. Part of it's because I'm, I'm not, I'm freed from distraction, all these sorts of things. And, and in fact, I think it's, it's, I describe it as simultaneously productive and relaxing. Uh, in a way that is almost impossible to achieve here. And so I think that's a big part of it, uh, is, is not, I don't really, and this is just a me thing. I don't try and impose this on others, but I, I, I don't have a, a, like, there's not a separation of those two things for me. Um, and, and part of that is because the, my work experience and, and being able to craft the team, uh, the way that, that, that we want to means that, um, means that you know my my best friendships are at at work. My um, you know I the teams that we build are incredible and um, and it's very human for me to like and joyful to be not just the work, not just the craft, but but the people of Flywheel um, uh, and to be around them. And so you have this both like hey I love traveling to get away, but but also at the same time can be you know can sort of meld that with the the act of doing work but also you know when i'm when i'm here and and present it you can you know it's it's a very human experience as well and because the you know i think the, the people of flywheel are honestly what make it special and and you know i think in that regard it's more than just the work or the business of it it's 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 part of like part of where i derive sort of human joy from do you have any anxiety or sleepless nights about yes <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry about what? <laughs> what are those things that give you sleepless nights? Um, you know, I think that they're they're normal sort of company stuff. I you know I describe companies that are growing quickly or, or probably any company, um, frankly, of, of just periods of extreme highs and periods of extreme lows, right? Like and um, and hopefully the the highs out, out, out outnumber the lows, but. You know, there's there's 200 people at Flywheel that that rely on us to make the right decisions so that they can provide for their families, so that they their kids can go to college, so that they can they can have a family. And um, I think that's a that's a big one. And and you know, doing right by them is 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 one of the things that 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 we think a lot about. Um, 
you know, I think that there's generalized anxiety to, um, you know, perf- to, to perform in, 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 in a world where you like, you know, we have, we are certainly expectations that are set against us. We have investors, we have, um, you know, per- I think performance goals and things like that. Um, and so I think that's, that's, that's it. But the, the big one is the people, right? Like that, make sure that, um, you know, we care an awful lot about our, our people and making sure that, that it's a two way street. We ask a lot of them, um, and push them really hard, but make sure that we are, that we are sort of reciprocating, um, and that that's, that, that that's balanced. And I think, I think a lot about that these days. I can remember my first contact with the internet. And I wonder if you can remember what was your first contact with the internet. With the internet, I remember, man, these like AOL chat rooms. Uh, when I, I don't, must have been in middle school or something. I don't remember. But I just remember being at like a buddy's house and just discovering chat rooms uh, for the first time. And the idea that you could just type at somebody in another side another part of the world is was was pretty 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 mind-blowing but that's probably the first the first like specific like i'm connected to the internet here's what i'm doing sort of memory i guess how is omaha do you think a different place given the role of people like yourself uh these entrepreneurs that are catalyzing something here how how is omaha a different place well, Omaha is a, a dramatically different place overall in the last in the last ten years. Not only uh, in business, but lots of different ways. And one of the things that I, I I love, I've got lots of friends that are not only like me in you know building technology businesses, but you know I have friends in uh, in the in the restaurant world who have um, you know I think I've watched the restaurant scene as an example grow. And I I look at you know. One of the first interviews Big Omaha ever did was with Paul Kulik from the Boiler Room before the Boiler Room opened, um, and uh, and about what that restaurant meant to the city and to the food scene, and and then it opened and then it happened, and I think the effect that the Boiler Room has had in the last ten years on the food scene of Omaha is an example of like it's not just for me about tech, and it's not just about. Um, you know, innovation in the traditional sense. I think that 
Omaha has benefited from from things like uh, from folks like me, but also from folks like Paul, who are innovators in and of their own right uh, and have a vision for what the impact that they can make on the city is. Uh, and then have done that. And I've seen that time and time again in the last 10 years, not only in tech, but across the, across the spectrum. It would just seem really hard to me to be driven out of a set of corporate experiences because it, it just wasn't what you wanted and you knew that you could do something better for yourself. To go from that and founding something to then some years later actually being responsible, as you say, for the livelihoods and the well-being of 200 plus people, as well as someone else's money, as well as your own well-being and your own money. And I, I just wonder how wearing, just how taxing that is, or, or do the benefits just outweigh that? Well, if you, if you believe in a positive outcome, then yeah, the, 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 the benefits certainly outweigh. Um, I'd say that the, the, the thing that is, is the most challenging for me, and I think back often, I tell all the new higher classes at Flywheel about the, sort of the origin story of Flywheel. And when it was just my two partners, Rick and Tony, and myself in the garage, um, you know, I guess the proverbial garage, uh, uh, you know, hacking away on this thing and, and building and, and, you know, we, we could build, sell, market, support everything ourselves. And, and in a way, to your point, there wasn't anybody relying on us. And, um, and at, at that point you have full control over, over things, right? The only thing in your way at that point is, is, is how hard you work and how much effort you put into it, right? You have, you have full control over your destiny in a way. And the bigger that we get, um, to your point, you, 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 you have less overall control over it. And, um, but, but you do still, right? And I think if you believe in, in the fact that you build this machine to be of a, of a company to be, to be healthy and self-sustaining and, um, and then, then while it gives me anxiety, uh, the idea that, that we, that these people are dependent on me, I have high faith in the machine that we've built sort of being able to weather uh, any storm. And that's, that's number one because of the people, um, but also because of the process that we've built and the products that we've built and, and the customers that we've built relationships with and their trust in us. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the, the, in fact, the bigger that we get, the more resilient we become in that regard. And so you have less of a, a less of an anxiety around that um, at, a, at a sort of a macro level. Um, you know, I think personally, you, you, that helps with the fact that it, you know, the, does the benefit outweigh the cost, so to speak. Um, but, uh, you know, personally, I will always sort of shoulder that burden, I think. Four, five, six years' time, it's fluid, but there'll be an exit point from Flywheel. What's next? Well, you know, I would say that, you know, Flywheel's on the early, we were six and a half years in, Flywheel's on the early edge uh, of, I think, our, our big opportunity, and we're on a, on a rocket ship. So, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think a lot about what's next. I'm also, like, fully unemployable, so it's not like there's a, it's like, <laughs> you know, like, there's not like there's something there. Um, but, we're, we're, like, my partners and I are, are super, super, you know, uh, you know, bought in, engaged, sort of driven, uh, sort of not tired at, at what we're doing. And we've got extraordinary teams of people that are doing really cool things. I think Flywheel's best years are ahead of it. Um, and so we're focused on that. Like that's, that's priority number one. Uh, and, and while, you know, I think that, you know, our business certainly is, will exit someday by some definition. Uh, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's sort of not, not any 
plans for that in any any way now besides just building a, a really sort of big and impactful company and you know in that case you know things happen I've been in conversation with Dusty Davidson, co-founder of Flywheel. Dusty, thank you for being on the show. Stuart, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hello. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.